Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Jackie Smith, the former Home Secretary and the first ever female Home Secretary. I've been dying to get Jackie on the show for ages and she didn't disappoint. She is brilliant and uh, it's, it's funny, it's frank, it's very honest and give brilliant insight into what it's like to be Home Secretary. Now, as with, I'm sure, many of you, slightly fascinated by the security services, and I do try a couple of times to get maybe perhaps a bit more insight than we're used to, how effective I am at trying to get Jackie Smith to effectively spill state secrets. You will have to judge for yourself. But it's wide-ranging, and I think, crucially, slightly different to recent interviews with other Labour figures, in that it's not... It doesn't major on the current direction of the Labour Party. It's far more about uh, her experience of politics in general and of specifically her time in government. Um, But enjoy. And, oh yes, and there are two political parties in December. Uh, The first on the 6th of December, Wednesday the 6th, with Baroness Saeed Avasi and Nick Clegg. There's about 10 tickets left for that, if that, this morning. And then we've added an extra date on the 7th of December, which is Anna Soubry and Ken Livingston. And there are tickets left for that. You can get them on the Leicester Square Theatre website. That's where the, uh, the gig is taking place. For next year, the guests are as follows for the first three months. In January... Conservative MP James Cleverley, often tipped to be a future leadership contender, a very funny man. In February, I am delighted to announce that former Labour leader Ed Miliband will be on the show. And in March, potentially a future Labour leader, one of the stars of Jeremy Corbyn's Shadow Cabinet, the Shadow Education Secretary Angela Rayner. More guests to be announced for the rest of the year. I think those three have already sold out and there's only a handful of tickets at the other palace for any of the dates until November. And I, I, do, I know they go very quickly, and I know people get annoyed, particularly regulars, that they can't get them, but I'm slightly powerless as to what to do about it. But um, all I can do is keep telling you to go on the website. But um, thank you to all of you that buy the tickets, because it's always the highlight of my month, and I just love sitting opposite politicians and talking to them and interviewing them, crucially, uh, listening to them, if anything, not talking to them. Um, but there we are. Thank you all for coming. Enjoy this interview. And there are still tickets left for the for the seventh uh, of December. Anna Soubry and Ken Livingston at the Leicester Square Theatre. This is Jackie Smith. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Give me a cheer if you've been to the political party before. Yeah. Excellent. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Lots of newcomers. We used to start by making the noises of the House of Commons about five years ago, and I, it was only today I realised I really missed it. Um, has anyone tried this before? It's amazing, yeah, yeah. So what we'll do, we'll just, I'll say something that you could barely disagree with, and at the end of the sentence, just together, all go, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr Speaker, does the government not agree that, uh, the, that we should give everyone present at the political party tonight £100,000 directly in cash as a fiscal stimulus? Yeah. 
does feel good, doesn't it? There's something in there, like mindfulness or something. There's something definitely good for the soul. But welcome to the show after uh, another remarkably uh, volatile uh, month in politics. Uh, Boris Johnson has been putting his foot in it, uh, as usual, uh, by trying to release as Foreign Secretary a British national, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who's been detained in Iran. You might have seen this. She says she was there on holiday. Um, but our Foreign Secretary disagrees and told the Parliamentary Select Committee, oh, no, 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 she was out there um, training teachers, which is just obviously a cover story for being a spy. You might as well say, no, 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 she was out there photographing aeroplanes and hanging around outside government buildings, but it's absolutely fine. And by the way, let me just say, if any of our boys embedded in Mosul are listening, your secret is safe with me. I won't tell anyone about those great teachers we've got out in Syria. These absolutely fucks are over. It's just incredible. Uh, remarkable stuff. This is part of the problem, is that he's now the person who's got to sort the mess out. So is he now going to try and negotiate with the Iranians? Now you, you bloody well listen here. Yeah, you, you release her, I will launch, I will launch an airstrike on Turin. Well, Tehran, yeah, Tottenham, whatever. I mean, <laughs> anywhere that misbehaves, mark my words. I don't trust him to be able to get us out of this uh, situation. But a lot of people have been uh, campaigning on behalf of uh, this British national who's out in, uh, out in Iran detained, including the Labour MP for Hampstead and Kilburn, Tulip Sadiq, uh, who's been very vocal about it. Um, now, this big story this week has broken that uh, another British national has been detained in Bangladesh, Mr Bin Qasem. Uh, but... Tulip Sadiq has been less vocal about this, which is a bit awkward because Tulip Sadiq's auntie is the Prime Minister of Bangladesh. <laughs> so it would be relatively easy for her to intervene. Now, she was in the street um, getting doorstep by Channel 4, and it all kicks off. You might have seen this footage on Twitter. And as the, as the, the exchange ends, she tries to sort of put her authority down, and she says to the producer of Channel 4 News, who's pregnant, good luck with the childbirth, Daisy. I, I hear child labour can be quite hard. <laughs> what sort of fucking how sinister is that yeah good luck with the operation I hope it doesn't go wrong say hello to the doctor he's a friend of mine he'll know what to do that's something out of a gangster film isn't it careful on the roads mate oh, you're treacherous at this time of year uh, of course people are transfixed by um, people have been watching I'm a celebrity get me out of here yes one six year old by the sounds of things um Kezia Dugdale's been in there, just as a straw poll. Do you think, give me a cheer if you think Kezia Dugdale was right to go into I'm a Celebrity? <laughs> give me a cheer if you think she was wrong. Very apathetic. Yeah, 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 yeah. very good. Um, most people are not really that bothered. Um, she says she's gone in there to try and convince people uh, uh, to support Labour politics, but I don't, I don't think that's the way to do it. <laughs> I don't think in university in ten years' time people are going to say, oh, what, what politicised you? Was it Das Kapital? Was it, was it John Stuart Mills on Liberty? No, she was watching a Scottish, Scottish politician eat a kangaroo's dick. That's what really convinced me we needed to control the means of production. There's been talk of her being expelled from the Labour Party for it. I mean, people have been expelled for some pretty fucking... How, I mean, what have you been expelled for? Which was, uh, yeah, spreading anti-Semitic propaganda on Twitter. You tried to reorganise uh, the local CLP so that Momentum couldn't win. You? Yeah, a uh, bollock smoothie. Uh, <laughs> the leadership uh, really against it. Uh, they prefer frappes, because they're from Islington. So they've really turned against smoothies. <laughs> this part of the... It's uh, very awkward for her. Uh, when I first heard that a former Scottish... 
Labour politic well, not formerly Scottish, still Scottish. <laughs> that, a, uh, that a former Scottish Labour leader was going into the jungle. I thought, fucking Gordon's book is not going very well. <laughs> I mean, every Bush Tucker trial would be a nightmare. This is Tony's doing. <laughs> Tony told you to do this. Tony told you, didn't he? I don't like kangaroo bollocks. Did Tony tell you that? <laughs> Two weeks in the jungle with a load of snakes. I did 20 years with Peter Mandelson. Huh? <laughs> it's not the biggest laugh of the night. That's the only one that's actually a sort of politician-y type joke. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> no, we had a deal. I would do the first week. Then Tony said clearly that he would take over <laughs> and do the Bush Tucker trails. He's let me down again. <laughs> Scottish Labour have a new leader, a guy called Richard Leonard who's from Yorkshire, and he was interviewed on Five Live recently by Adrian Childs. He said, can I just ask you, Richard, then, do you, do you, support, um, do you support England, then, or, or Scotland? And he goes, ha, ha, ha. It is a serious question. He goes, well, if it's, uh, if it's, if it's Scotland against England, yeah, yeah, I support England. I mean, of course he does, right? He's not going to sort of convince people otherwise. If I was Nicola Sturgeon now... I would arrange as many friendlies for as many sports as possible between Scotland and England. And every game, when all the dignitaries are going to sit together, just go, no, no, Richard, fuck off with you, Rio meets. <laughs> Tories have been cyberbullied because apparently they don't believe that animals have feelings. Uh, in an amendment to the Brexit bill, uh, which apparently was flawed, people got the impression that Tories who hadn't signed it didn't believe that animals were sentient or, or felt anything. Uh, and Michael Gove was outraged. He said, on behalf of all reptiles, let me say that we do. <laughs> we definitely do have feelings. Um, I mean, the Tories are in outrage. But, you know, how could anyone believe that the Tory party, who had in their manifesto a vote on fox hunting, would have an issue with the animal community? Um, apparently not all foxes are sentient. Uh, Liam Fox is... Uh, <laughs> Barely capable of any empathy, uh, or indeed strategic thinking. So he, uh, he disproves the rule. And Theresa May has now got a waxwork uh, at Madame Tussauds. It's said to be so lifelike, um, you immediately feel pity. <laughs> All the hatred goes, you just think, oh, I just feel bad for it now. And of course, the sex scandal has rocked Westminster. Uh, there have been a number of uh, individuals who have been named and shamed. Uh, amongst them, uh, the. Uh, I mean, Chris Pincher. I mean, in a phenomenal piece of nominative determinism, has grown up to be one, it turns out. Uh, Steve Stroker and Simon Squeezer have almost. Had, have also handed themselves in. Uh, it was the budget, of course, uh, last week, and uh, Philip Hammond wowed. Wow to the Commons, uh, apparently, with a, a series of great jokes. Now, I watched it live and then was stunned at the write-up that uh, Hammond's speech got because apparently it was gag-filled. I don't know if anyone saw it. But if you missed it, here, here are the cracking gags that you missed out on. So his top gag, apparently, according to the Evening Standard, after he announced £600 extra for every A-level pupil to spend on maths, said, more maths for everyone. Don't say, I don't know how to show the nation a good time. <laughs> Okay, if you didn't like that. Uh, this is another one of Philip Hammond's absolute corkers. This is dead cert, this one. He said, uh, if Labour carry on the way they're going, they'll be joining Kessia Dugdale in saying, I'm Labour, get me out of here. Okay. Uh, these aren't mine, by the way. Look at absolutely clear. 
And this is, I don't, under, I don't understand how this is a joke. Maybe I'm missing something here. But according to the Evening Standard, after announcing a rise in duty on white cider, but that other drinks would stay the same in price, the Chancellor quipped, Merry Christmas, Mr. Deputy Speaker. <laughs> Am I missing something? Because none of that is funny. I don't think anyone watched the budget and went, fucking hell, this is brilliant. Idiotic logic. Uh, John McDonnell. Uh, in his budget response well Corbyn did the budget response McDonald was then out on the airwaves and was badly briefed couldn't tell us what the size of the deficit was uh, couldn't tell us uh, at what rate Labour would pay it down couldn't tell us how much Labour would borrow um, and when he was pressed and pressed again for any sort of stats at all he said well this is what we have iPads for um, well it's not what Damien Green has an iPad for <laughs> I borrowed Damien Green's iPad and apparently the size of the deficit is, oh my God, it's massive. Uh, <laughs> it's growing by the second. Uh, and there's more than one of them. <laughs> and finally, Sinn Féin have said, uh, in, a, in a rarely scheduled Westminster press conference, Sinn Féin have said that if there is border security between uh, Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland, we should expect civil disobedience. Now, if that was a warning from any other party... It wouldn't sound too threatening. I mean, it sounds less like a threat, more like a coded warning. The sort of thing they used to phone in. Um, I mean, who do these people think they are? Tulip Sadiq? Can't go around making threats like that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have a phenomenal guest in the, in the second half, someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time here. Um, one, of the, one of my favourite uh, Labour politicians. Uh, so, do have a think about any questions you would like to uh, ask Jackie Smith in the second half, and at the end, I will uh, endeavour to get around as many uh, public questions as I can. For the time being, you've been a wonderful audience. Uh, we'll have a quick break to charge your glasses and go to the toilet, and I'll be back in the second half. Thanks very much. Cheers. Well, thank you very much. Ladies and welcome back to the uh, second half. Uh, I'm very excited about tonight's guest, someone I've wanted to interview uh, for a very long time. I did interview uh, Jackie on a TV show called Unspun, but it was uh, sadly in the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack, so we couldn't be that funny. Uh, so hopefully tonight we can, there can be a bit more levity in the room, although it sounds like you've taken it very seriously already. So uh, we, we, I think it's, sufficient time has passed that we can now talk about things in a slightly more lighthearted manner. Um, but tonight's guest... Uh, is one of the biggest stars of uh, the last Labour government, of the new Labour years. Served as chief whip under Tony Blair, just before Gordon Brown became Prime Minister, so uh, that must have been fascinating. And uh, was the first ever female Home Secretary, and on day one had to deal with a terrorist attack at Glasgow Airport and a car bomb in London. She's uh, grown uh, since leaving Parliament uh, into one of uh, Britain's best political pundits and best-loved political pundits, uh, I'm getting very emotional. Um, <laughs> please give a huge political party welcome to the legend, Jackie Smith. <laughs> Jackie, have a seat. Uh, we should explain that we've struggled to yes. sort of place the microphone on the... Uh, on the <laughs> I thought you might wear a jacket, you see, so lapel mics were quite hard. Yeah, I should have learnt, after all these years, to have something to stick it on, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Jackie, you were, uh, there's so many things I've, I've always wanted to ask you, um, but being a chief whip, in, <laughs> in the, in, 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 not just at the start of the Blair years, a chief whip towards the end of the Blair years, when, when Gordon's trying to take over, when letters are being circulated, yeah. petitions are being signed, 
How volatile was it? Well, I always say about my time as chief whip that uh, it, I was successful in that I didn't lose a vote, but I did lose a prime minister. <laughs> so um, I think that probably doesn't count as being particularly successful. I mean, it was, uh, that was quite a difficult time, that period of, um, as you say, the letter writing. I, can... I mean, we should be clear, it's not, it wasn't people trying to be pen pals. It was, <laughs> it was people calling for his head. It was um, Tom Watson going up to Scotland, um, supposedly for a curry, um, with Gordon. Uh, We've all done that. <laughs> it was, um, and I can still vividly remember being on Euston Station and having to make a phone call to Tom, in which I said, because he was a minister at the time, in which I said to him, Tom, you know, like, if you're a minister, it's not really the dumb thing to call for the Prime Minister to go. So you're either going to have to not do it or you're going to have to resign. You know, I, I like you, Tom, but this is, uh, this is the way it's going to have to be. And sure enough, he resigned. <laughs> so what did he say? Um, he, oh, was... Two lambooners. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was all very friendly in a sort of me thinking oh shit this is all going wrong in terms of getting him to withdraw it sort of a way and I wasn't one of those you know the things they always say about uh, chief whips in the old days you know thrusting people against the wall grabbing them by the briefs Um, (laughs) needless to say I never did any of those things so it was all about the power of persuasion and I'm afraid it failed me but there was something much bigger going on that I was never going to be able to succeed in doing then so, you're talking to Tom Watson, you're on Euston Station. Yeah. Are you in the concourse or on a platform? <laughs> I just I want to picture the, it. Yeah, so I'm on the concourse. Yeah, and this was before it was refurbed. Uh, <laughs> it's that, awful well, train well, station. Well, that's not going back. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, just by upper crust, if I remember yeah. right. Oh, I know it well, um, yeah. Uh, you know, Me on, and Tom know it well. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the phone, yeah. right? So yeah. I'm on the phone. Um, so I'm saying to him... Tom, you know, this isn't the sort of thing you can do if you're a minister, you know, next train to Birmingham New Street leaving from. Um, it's not the sort of office of state type yeah. surroundings you really want to, to be doing that sort of thing. But you're to watch your voice. Are you like, look, you're going to have to, sorry, can I just, was, was there was no one there going, are you the chief, that's the chief whip? Well, you're not, you, one of the things about chief whip is that you're slightly below the radar. So I'm not sure anybody recognise me. It wasn't quite like when I was Home Secretary and I used to also go through Euston Station, but with a police dog and protection team and armed British Transport Police. Then people did used to... You really were after Tom Watson. (laughs) (laughs) Then people did used to point and stare a little bit more like why she get into the front of the queue? Oh, because it's because there's a bloke with a gun with her. (laughs) How does it feel when you're, you're sort of surrounded by that level of security I imagine it's partly embarrassing. There must be part of it that feels cool. There's, um, well, I... (laughs) No, you're making me feel unworthy in saying that it was cool to be driven around in an armoured car, which, incidentally, is less cool because it is so heavy. You know, one of the reasons why when you see people with protection, somebody always jumps out and opens the door for them, it's partly about deference, but it's more about the fact that the door is so heavy that you can't actually get it open so it would be a bit unseemly for the home secretary to be sort of having a boot against the door in order to to get it open so there's all of that stuff uh they come with you everywhere so even i mean you don't have a lot of free time when you're home secretary but one of the things that i always used to try and do was to go to football with my boys 
So um, we used to go to Villa Park and they wanted me to go in the director's box. And I said, no, I sit in the Doug Ellis stand. That's it. We're going to carry on doing that. So the first week they did a, and I said, I want it to be as unobtrusive as possible. So they did, (laughs) the West Midlands special branch did a sort of triangle (laughs) configuration around me, which equally was pretty obvious to other fans. Phyllis should have tried that in midfield. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. <laughs> but loose fan over there. Um, they, uh, but the other, I do remember my my husband and my boys still love that this happened. We were coming out one day, and they were they were they were much more um, uh, unnoticeable at that point. And it being after a football match, there's a bit of sort of push and shove, and, and a little bit of argy bargy started happening beside us. And um, they sort of slightly hustled me off because being like I am, I was sort of going, oh, it's, oh, it's kicking off, what's going on? <laughs> so they moved me along and they sort of, in this quite clever way that they have, they sort of move the argy-bargy to the side, at which point one of the lads says, what's that, what are you doing? And, and the uh, protection officer says, you need to just move away, you need to get out of here. And, and the, the kid says, why, what's it to you? And the, <laughs> the protection officer says, you don't want to know, son. <laughs> <laughs> Given that he was carrying a gun, it was all slightly <laughs> Could, Do you get recognised much when you go to Villa Park, then? Um, well, I sat in the same place that I'd always sat, and I got recognised... When I was Home Secretary, I got recognised a bit, but I think it's overstated, to be honest with you, how much you get recognised, even as a sort of quite senior um, politician. What most often happens is you get that... I think I might know who you are, but I'm not quite sure, and I don't know if I should say anything. I mean, I got—I I can remember going back to my old university to get a library ticket to because I was doing some research, and I went to the to the library office to get the ticket and had to have a photo and everything. She looked at me and she said, "You look very familiar," <laughs> and I thought, oh, "Here we go." And then she said, um, "Were you on my bus this morning?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is nice. Which was better than when I said to somebody, somebody said, what's your name? And I said, Jackie Smith. And she said, oh, bloody hell, not that one. (laughs) (laughs) So at what age did you start watching Villa? (laughs) (laughs) Or or do you remember your first game at at Villa Park? Um, I was was reasonably old. I mean, I was sort of in teenage years. And then I really started going... More when I had, uh, first of all, when I was uh, just married, and then we had a bit of a gap when the boys were born, and then we took them, we took them back again. And it was just a sort of nice, bizarrely, going to Villa Park was a way to relax. That's what being a <laughs> secretary does, does for you. Because it is, it's one of my favourite football stadiums, Villa Park. The series I, I keep, yeah. it was, uh, back in the day, was the host of many FA Cup semi-finals. Yeah. It's a grand old football stadium in a way that we, that there aren't many left like that that haven't been over-redeveloped. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a bushism. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, they've still got that old heart and soul, but you find yourself in the championship now, possibly yeah. to get promoted. Yeah. John Terry plays for Villa now. Indeed. Have yeah. you met him? No, I haven't. No, no, no. And uh, the last time the boys went and I wasn't able to go, they weren't that impressed with him, I have to say. And, of course, he's only going to be there until we get promoted again because he won't play for us in the premiership because I think he's always said he won't play against Chelsea, so... So you think you'll definitely get promoted then? Well, I've got to think that, haven't I? <laughs> I'm optimistic about my team. But you're not, you know, when you go there, you don't get, you know, because there's different types of football fans, aren't there? Um, do you ever get the people coming up to you going, oh, no, Jackie, 
Do you remember when Gareth Barry got sent off for descent? Or, you know, did you get the sort of... The weirdos. <laughs> There's nothing weird about a Birmingham accent. <laughs> <laughs> you bloody East Midlander. I know. <laughs> Because there was a bit of a rival between Villa and Forest back in the day, wasn't there? But a bit. I mean, nothing like there is between Villa and the Blues, but uh, yeah. There's, Some of those have been of... proper. Have you been at the ones where it's been really hairy? Uh, to be honest, I don't actually like them very much. I find it a bit, you know, I don't mind a bit of shouting of abuse. Yeah. More in the House of Commons than, on, <laughs> uh, than at Villa Park. But I don't like it when it gets really like that. Do you ever get vocal something. in the stands yourself? Um... D- <laughs> <laughs> Are you asking if I say swear words or anything? Yeah, referees or players. Well, given that I was once given an award for being by a, a bill, a set of civil servants working on a bill for being the minister most likely to swear in a bill meeting, you can imagine that I do occasionally <laughs> let the odd word slip from my lips during a tense moment at football. It must be quite difficult, though, if you're Home Secretary and it's kicking off, because... You, do people sort of expect you to intervene? There are <laughs> well, you don't need to, do you? Because you've got an armed police officer with you that's going to stop any nonsense happening. Um, yes, you, the, the, the whole thing about being a Home Secretary, and you talked about the, the programme that we did just after the, um, uh, the terrorist attack, and the thing I felt most about becoming Home Secretary was the enormous sense of responsibility yeah. that came down on your shoulders, you know? And I am naturally quite a smiley person, um, I used to wear uh, sort of bright clothes in that sort of new labour bright jacket sort of a way. Um, and when you... Uh, <laughs> you the good when, old days. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. When you um, become Home Secretary, you suddenly, you know, all of a sudden you suddenly think, well, actually, it is not appropriate for me because, as you rightly say, within 24 hours I was outside Downing Street responding to a terror attack. You... It would just be wrong to be wearing bright clothes and it would just be wrong to be photographed grinning the whole time. So although, actually, I used to hate the fact that as a woman politician my clothes were commented on, there's uh, there's also a certain element of it where you actually have to sort of fulfil the role. So, because this is... A lot of people think that there's, you know, armies of advisers that are constantly telling politicians what they can and can't do. Things like that, actually, you're self-regulating. The responsibility of the role almost commands you to... Depending on what you want to do, but you just yeah. chose yourself to yeah, behave yeah. in a particular way. I mean, you have to have personal knowledge and judgment, or you wouldn't be able to do a job like Home Secretary or Foreign Secretary. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is an element of advisers suggesting things to you. So I was asked to do a piece for a newspaper about uh, my favourite uh, tracks, and I hilariously suggested to the communications guy that I might do I predict a riot, <laughs> at which point he's always... <laughs> so, so we never had that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to joke when you're in a role like yeah, that, you isn't just, it? You just can't, which is why it's... it's um, I mean, it's, it's the biggest honour of my political life to have been Home Secretary. There is something, as I said when I took on the role, there is something for an elected politician about being asked to protect our communities and our borders in order to allow people to get on with their lives. That is a massive honour. It's an incredibly um, sort of intense job. You get, of course, to see things that you don't see in any other ministerial job. So, you know, I was an education minister, I was a health minister, and you've at least got some idea of, I mean, I had been a teacher, so I'd got quite a lot of idea about education. You've got some idea about what happens in health. You 
as Home Secretary, you know something about the police, you know something about the border, you know nothing, quite rightly, about what goes on in the security services. And uh, that sense of responsibility for the people that are keeping our country safe, some of them in plain sight and some of them not, is, an, um, is a massive sort of honour and responsibility at the same time. And it's, I mean, apart from there being a lot of work, that um, sits heavily on your shoulders because you do think, I know things about how dangerous potentially the country is. You think, I know things about the threat. I feel a sense of responsibility to keep people safe. Um, and actually, uh, also, my view as a politician was, it's fundamentally important for the success of the government and incidentally for the Labour government, and this is what Tony Blair also recognised so clearly, that we are serious about security yeah. and we're serious about tackling crime. If you can't keep people safe, why would they trust you to do anything else uh, as a government? So th- it felt like a lot of responsibility, but a massive honour. It, it's a huge job and one that many have, have turned down. Heseltine famously called it a, a minefield and, and didn't want it when, when Major tried to give it to him. Um, when you say that you're, you're obviously you're, you're privy to information that the rest of us aren't when you get these security briefings, I mean, is it hard to not then act on it? To think, well, I'm not going to have a Tower Bridge on the 24th. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you sort of think, do you get how, many, how much specific detail do you get in some of these things? Do you know what? It's secret. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you. Well, if they've got a lot of specific detail, they will probably be taking action as soon as they've got that sort of detail so you know for example and certainly if that in any way becomes public so uh the um 2009 i think it was when i had had a pretty sort of tiring and torrid time and i was due to have two days off in brighton with my family and i can remember getting down to brighton and sitting on the beach and I rested my head back on my handbag, at which point my phone rang for them to say, you know that terrorist plot that uh, has been, been being tracked? Well, unfortunately, Bob Quick has gone into Downing Street with details of it showing on his folder. Do you yes, remember that? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because of that, they then had to move immediately. So because of that, I had to get back in the car and go straight back up to, to London again. So... I wouldn't say, uh, I mean, you know, you can't change your life because of the terror threat. I mean, that's part of what terrorists want you to do, of course, even when you know the specifics. But when people really know the specifics, that's when they've got to take action. And that's what's so challenging about terrorism, because you can potentially know that there is a threat, there is a plot, but you can't get enough information or enough evidence to enable you to really arrest people and charge them, which is, of course, the reason for all the controversy about how long you should be able to keep people for, for before you can charge them in terrorism offences. There must have been part of you when, you know, you're desperate for those two days off, you're on Brighton Beach, the phone rings, you must have thought, oh, fuck them off for a couple of hours, I'll go to the arcade, you know, I'll have a bag of chips and ice cream, I'll go down the end of the pier and then I'll ring back and say, oh, sorry, I had it on silent. Do you know, yes, except, of course... You're not the only person with the phone. Your protection team have got a phone as well. So if you don't answer it, they'll come and yeah, yeah. hoist you back up to London anyway. Yeah, they can't really say, sorry, the Home Secretary's on one of those 2 p slot machines. Yeah, she's, she's, she's nearly shaking got, it, actually. She's nearly got the teddy bear. Yeah. For God's sake, give her the chance to do it. You were, um, I mean, the role of Home Secretary is demanding enough as well. Without the historical context, you were the first ever female Home Secretary. Did that add anything to the, to the pressure on you, do you think? 
Um, when you are the first woman who does something, I think it's, you know, when I see other people who are the first woman, I feel massively sort of proud and um, I feel that they are a role model and I feel pleased that they're, they're forging that way. When it's you, you don't feel like that because it's you, except that I do know that there were lots of people who said to me, we feel really proud that there's a woman who's the Home Secretary. So I feel a sense of responsibility uh, from that. I did anyway from being a woman in politics. And one of the things that I still do in the Labour Party is that I'm uh, on the Management Committee of Labour Women's Network because I want Mm -hmm. there to be more women getting into Parliament. I want there to be more Labour uh, women Home Secretaries. I want there to be a woman leader of the Labour Party, for example. And that's something that I think I can help to uh, achieve. It's something where I can use the fact that I was the first to make sure that we get past that era of firsts that we're still in. In terms of dealing with the department, do you think they were sort of rattled to, to not be dealing with a bloke for the first time? Uh, I don't know. You know, civil servants are incredibly um, professional, uh, I always found. I never was one of those ministers, I don't think, that said, oh, God, if only if it wasn't for the civil servants, I'd be able to do everything I wanted to. You know, I actually always found them incredibly good to work with. Um, you know, nobody sort of wandered into the office and went, oh, my God, they've let a woman in here. We're not going to be able to manage it. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. They, uh, I don't think John although, McDonald was a minister at the time. <laughs> <laughs> although there was. Not the civil servants. But I have to say, in that first weekend, there was a certain amount of unstated and even un, un, um, intentional, I think, sexism around the response to the terrorism attack. Because there was quite a lot of comment that said... Um, and I, th- I think they thought they were being nice, but they said things like, uh, Jackie Smith has responded very calmly to the terror attack and she's explained uh, in a sort of assured manner without any panic. And uh, the, sort of, the underlying message there was, oh my God, they've let a woman in the Home Office. Uh, the first thing she's going to do is go, uh, terror attack, terror attack, I can't manage it, and sort of come running hysterically out of Downing Street, um, not being able to manage it. So the fact that you can manage it means is, is sort of something which is, I think... Uh, unintended everyday sexism, I'm afraid. Did you? I mean, obviously, it's a big, big discussion at the moment—not just um, sexism, but sexual conduct uh, of particularly male members of Parliament. Not just now, but historically. Have you ever encountered? Cause I've been trying to rack my brains. You know, thinking of when I worked for the party. Did was did I ever hear anything about people? I've been trying to rack my brains to try and remember if I ever heard rumours about people or if I ever mm. saw anything. Have you? Did you ever encounter any? Direct or indirect stuff? I think, I mean, certainly I heard rumours about people who were, you know, to use some of the recent expressions, perhaps a little bit handsy or um, uh, sometimes people who'd been in relationships, which I think is a a completely different thing. But of course, this is about uh, power, this um, sexual harassment. And when I arrive, and if you are an MP, you are already in a powerful position, even as a woman. And I became a minister after um, a couple of years. So I didn't personally experience, you know, I experienced sexism and um, the odd uh, slightly wrong comment. Um, but actually, I was in a powerful position. So I didn't experience some of the harassment that people yeah. have talked about. And I think it's a far greater problem for those people working alongside politicians, where the politicians feel entitled and powerful and they're working with people who are uh, dependent for their jobs 
on them. And that's where it becomes really, I think, pernicious. And that's why, of course, you absolutely need an independent way for people to report if they are suffering from sexual harassment because you cannot have the people on whom you may be defending for a political job judging but two people from the same political party. It's why, you know, Bex Bailey, uh, who is also in the Women's Network with me, was so brave to say what she said about the rape that she had suffered. And I, and I hope and believe it will allow other people to speak up. And it will also force my party to go even further than it has done in making sure that that's, there's that independent element that takes away the pressure of power from those who need to report those charges. It's absolutely the heart of it. I, I wonder as well, how hard is it to feel powerful? How does that affect, not in a sexual way, but just how does that... When you've got power, there is... Do, we, do you want me to talk about... How, just, no, 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 no. Well, by all means. I mean, it's, you know, we're a very liberal society. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, do always do more podcast listeners. Um, but, if, but just in terms of what's it like to feel like a powerful person, to know that you're in a situation where the people around you do rely on you for you know, their yeah. employment, is it difficult to not be changed by that? Um... It probably is difficult, yes, because you you are, as a minister, and particularly as a cabinet minister, um, you're powerful in terms of the decisions that you can make uh, within your department, although, of course, you're never quite as powerful as people think you are because you still have to negotiate with your colleagues and go through all of those uh, processes. You're powerful in terms of, uh, you write, um, people's jobs and futures to a certain extent, even though you're not directly hiring and firing as a um, minister. And one of the problems, I think, actually, that women sometimes have is that they don't uh, own power when they have it. So, you know, there's a really interesting... I got really angry when Women's Hour um, did, did their sort of Power 100 or whatever it was. And lots of women were saying things like... Were you in it? I wasn't. It was after, slightly after my oh, time. Okay. <laughs> I would have, might have been in it. LAUGHTER I, I am, incidentally, in the Birmingham Post Power 250. <laughs> 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 what, what, what number? <laughs> <laughs> son, 49. You, you know what? My son asked me that last night, and I said, no, they don't really do it by ranking. They just do it by groups of people in different areas. And you're like, yeah, I'm right. <laughs> anyway, so I don't quite know which number I'm in. I'll, if I know, you know, I'll give you the I'll information. Anyway, where were we? Yeah, own your power. Own yes. your power. And, you know, some women like to say, oh, well, I, I don't really feel powerful. I think I'm more influential. No, you're powerful. If you're powerful, own it and use it in a way, hopefully, that supports other women and does the things that you believe in. I mean, Labour does have a, speci- you know, a, a, a different problem to the Conservatives. There are different types of sexism around. And, uh, again, I've racked my brains thinking about the time that I worked for Labour. I actually think the party is institutionally sexist. I think that... The, the, the manner in which... It's so much harder for women to get on in the Labour Party. And we, for a period, we've had more female members than any other party, particularly going to meetings and things. And yet, getting the hands on power... So when we tried to deliver all women shortlists, I was threatened with legal action by all sorts yeah. of people. You yeah. know, my job was on the line for, for imposing all women shortlists in places like Northampton, you know, where... Yeah. 
I mean, who gives a shit what happens in Northampton? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Excuse me, we had two Labour MPs in Northampton in 1997, I'll have you know. We did. Yeah. And, uh, well, one of them was Tony Clark, and he, well, he went, Google him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that went wrong, didn't it? Um, but um, it, was a, it was a council level, and it was just the, I'd never had a row. I can never remember a row in my life. Like I've had over yeah. all in shortness over yeah. a decision to, to impose them on certain areas. And the resistance, yeah. not just from men, but from women as well, but mainly from, you know, old in the tooth yeah. men who felt it was their turn next. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, no, the Tories, whatever we think of Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, have had two female prime ministers. Mm. I mean, what, Margaret Thatcher, whatever we think of her, era-defining. Yeah. No prime minister really since has made a mark in the same way that, that she did. Why are the Tories more ready to put women in charge than, than, than Well, Labour. the interesting thing is they're willing to have... Um, it's a really interesting debate. What, what you see in the Tories is that they have been willing to have women leaders. They have not had the critical mass of women mm. in government or in their party that we've had in Labour. In Labour, we've had... Uh, you know, we had those 100 Labour M- women uh, MPs elected in 1997. We've continued to develop that, largely because of the policy of all women shortlists. So my argument to people who oppose all women shortlists is to say, look, um, let's not remember that before I was, uh, let's not forget that before I was elected to Parliament, there were more people called John in Parliament than there were women. Uh, The only thing that has been successful in changing that entrenched discrimination was all women shortlists. Don't come to me and tell me how much you really wish there was equality, but all women shortlists are so unfair. If you will the ends, you've got to will the means. And Equally, don't come to me and tell me, oh, well, I'd, I'd rather it was all done on the basis of a meritocracy. So would I, mate. But the point is, I don't think that there are four good men for every one good woman. No. So something was going wrong and the system had to change. And all women shortlists have been the most successful way of doing that. It, it, it's just, it, I went to watch, uh, and I thoroughly recommend it, a play called Labour of Love, which is by uh, the same guy who wrote um, This House. Uh, and it's Martin Freeman and, and Tamsin Grieg, a, a love story set against the history of the Labour Party. It was only when they did a compilation of all the leaders of the Labour Party, and I know Margaret Beckett was interim leader but was never elected leader, they're all white blokes, and you think, this is very odd to be watching a play about the so-called progressives, mm. and not that they're all men, they're all white. Like, it does, in, a, in an instant, it really sort of delivered it home how... Even a progressive party has problems with, with gender and race. Yes, it does. And it needs to... And funnily enough, I was sort of having an argument on Facebook about um, all women shortlists, in fact. Just, Do you still just, have just, Facebook rows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter. Um, and, in fact, somebody said to me, so you're suggesting that CLPs are sexist. Is that what you're suggesting? And the point was, yes, that was what I was suggesting. <laughs> you know, I don't think that... You know, I wouldn't point a finger at indiv- well, many individuals and say you are specifically sexist, but there is institutional sexism in the Labour Party, and if you're not willing to counter it, then you're not as progressive as you think you are. And it's not... This isn't a point about the... Mon- this is... Been as long as I've been a, you know, yeah. or was a Labour Party member. This oh, is an absolutely. old problem. This isn't about, you know, the direction of the party at no. the time. Um, I did want to talk about the Chief Whip a, a, a little more, and I touched <laughs> on this house there, which, which, you know, displays brilliantly the Whip's office in the, in the seventies. And you say that when you came in, that sort of arm up the back and hand on the briefs technique had, <laughs> had, had gone. What was your main technique as Chief Whip to keep people in line? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. It sounds really boring, but <laughs> I saw the job rather more as sort of p- 
pastoral support. And that isn't in a sort of, come to my office and have some pastoral support sort of, <laughs> sort of a way. I'm genuinely, if you think in this day and age that you can threaten uh, politicians into submission, um, even back when I was chief whip, I think you're wrong. Um, there is a certain element, of course, of appealing to people's better instincts in terms of a collective activity as members of the Labour Party. That gets you a little way. Uh, there is a certain amount of appealing to people's wish to be promoted. That gets you a bit further. Um, and there is a certain amount of just arguing the case with people. So quite a lot of time as, as whips, not just chief whip, but for all whips, there's a sort of relationship building, engaging talking to people about what they, can, what they can support and what they can't support. So some of it, of course, is seeing off um, areas where there's going to be difficulties for the government or the party in advance yeah. as well. So it's more sort of HR department than it is sort of torture dungeon going on in there. But a bit of torture. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but people, certainly as Chief Whip, people would bring you information. Whether you chose to use it or not is another matter. But it must have been great for gossip. Perhaps the reason why they let me be in charge of the spies afterwards was because I didn't go around gossiping about what people came and told me in the chief whips. But office. you would never use that against someone. You say, "Look, you vote with us on foundation hospitals," or your wife finds out, <laughs> or whatever. You know, I wouldn't know. We've got the photos, Pete. <laughs> I don't know why I chose Pete there. <laughs> Mandelson immediately no. came to. <laughs> Enough, he always voted with the government. There was no problem there. Oh, loyalty to the government was never his issue. But um, why do you think you were chosen to be chief whip? Um, I think it was because I had been uh, previously in the Department for Education and I'd done a um, particularly difficult education bill that quite a lot of Labour members, Labour MPs weren't that keen on, but that we'd got through and we'd sort of made the arguments and done the handling. So I think that was the reason why I was chosen for that. You're never quite sure why you're, why you're chosen for any ministerial job, by the way. And, of course, the first job that I ever had, there was some logic in it because it was education minister and I had previously been a teacher. But um, it's, it's a sh- you get a ministerial job, remember, you don't apply, you don't make a bid, you don't say, here's my CV, can I be education minister? You sit at home uh, on reshuffle day and think, oh, I wonder if this could be my chance. And then there's a phone call, which there was, 1999, I had uh, one of my children on my knee um, and on the phone they said, uh, this is number 10 and the Prime Minister would like to see you today, at which point the the kid gets dumped (laughs) on And if you ask my boys, they say, yeah, that summed up the next 10 years. Um, And then uh, you sort of rush out to the car and my husband drove me to the station and we got to the first bend and all of the papers that I put on top of the car and forgot to take off all fell on the floor so we had to get out and scrabble around in the gutter and pick these papers out and then I got on the train got down to London got to the gates of Downing Street oh hello I'm Jackie Smith I'm here to see the Prime Minister and the guy gets his board and he looks up and down and he goes your name's not on the list (laughs) Tempted as I was to call him a pleb at that point, I did. <laughs> I said, do you, th- do you think you could ring to see, to see if it's... And anyway, they rang up and sure enough, I was allowed in. So it was all OK. And you don't get any inkling before then? You don't get a sort of word in the ear? Oh, you fancy an education job or...? 
No, God. So there's absolutely zero. There's, there's no indication at all. You never have a, you know, a moment with Tony Blair where you'd say, actually, we're, we're looking at shaking up education. So, yeah. I think that, you know, <laughs> but not, not even that sort of brief the suggestion. The only time in my ministerial life, and I did seven, eight different ministerial jobs, the only time that I got the opportunity to say which job I would like to do was in the run-up to the change of Prime Minister, when Gordon was sort of talking to everybody, what job would you know? What job would you like, Jackie? Um, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't quite like that. His voice or what he said. And, um, he's, and I, said, I told him what job I would really like and why I thought I'd be well qualified for it. And he gave me a completely different one. So even when you do make a... When you're powerful enough and the opportunity arises to make a bid, for all, all sorts of other reasons, you may well end up with a different job. So what job did you ask for? I asked to be uh, Secretary of State for Education. Because that was something more close to your heart. Yeah, I'd done, I'd done two stints in the Department for Education and I had really enjoyed it. And, and I suppose I didn't really realistically think Home Secretary was on offer, which was why when he offered it to me, I didn't, you know, I wasn't as rude as Margaret Beckett and used the F word. Um, did she use the F word? Yeah, she did. Yeah. When she was made Foreign Secretary by Tony Blair, yeah. she what? said... Oh, fuck this. <laughs> did she? She didn't want it? no. I think it was rather more shock. Oh, right. <laughs> she wanted it. I just went, oh, that's a bit of a shock. <laughs> Not that's a bit of a shock. Um, oh, I thought you meant she'd like someone to fuck up. No. <laughs> what about your foreign sex? Like, fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing that. God. No. Wow, I didn't know Margaret Beckett had sworn. Yes, yes. There's something else me and Margaret Beckett have got in common. What's that? Caravans. Um... <laughs> The same one? No, because, Matt, Margaret Beckett is foreign, she, was foreign secretary. Yes. So she used to take her caravan off around the continent. I don't yeah. know if she was meeting foreign prime ministers while she was there. I doubt it. <laughs> um, whereas I was home secretary. Not in a caravan. <laughs> but you wouldn't, you'd, she'd, st- she'd maybe use that for transportation and then meet at the official residence, but... No, genuinely. Pop your slippers off, Sylvia. I'll I'll just unfold the bed, turn it into a fridge, and then I'll get some UHT milk. I'll put my little kettle on the. the Um, No, but I was Home Secretary, so I had a caravan that stayed at home, static, in Wales. So that's not real, by the way, that I was Home Secretary. So it is real that I had a caravan, but not. Yeah. So you had a caravan that you you didn't take anywhere. Well, no, because it was static. It, it's a big one. It's got six beds in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So was that like a holiday home? A holiday caravan, yeah. Yeah, but not outside your house. Like, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you just meant you'd have to leave no, up on the no, drive. No, like, no, I didn't leave it. No, it was in Wales, Yeah. between Harnick and Barmouth, if anybody's interested. Um, beautiful part of the country. I used to go, I even went there when I was Home Secretary Ooh. with the protection team. My, my good friend... <laughs> My good friend, Mike Foster, the MP for Worcester, uh, tells the story of coming on holiday with me. He says, oh, I went on holiday with the Home Secretary. Uh, I stayed in a tent. She was in the caravan. The protection team were in a hotel down the road. <laughs> <laughs> but, so when you've got the protection team with you like that, if you're in a caravan, one of them must have been fairly close by, like, not in the hotel. Would they have to, like, you know, top bunk and you go on the bottom? <laughs> 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 Would they have to stay in... No. No, they wouldn't have No, to. there wasn't enough... <laughs> no, they were in a hotel down the road. Um, they did... Um, of course, 
they, in London, uh, where I lived, they had a team with a gun outside the house, I wouldn't, which was great for the burglary Not trying rate, to get in. Burglary rate down the road. Um, they didn't in um, where my kids lived, because I said I don't really want that, much as the kids might have thought it was cool. And at the caravan, I mean, the idea that you're on a caravan site with 15 caravans and you've got some bloke toting a machine gun standing outside... That never happened. They, they sort of, there was an, a panic alarm, so that if anything had happened, I could have called them. But Like, in, like an award-enaded flat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, like something around my... There were, you could have something around your neck. Great, they want it. Panic button and, like, MI5 turn up. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. But so, obviously, there's huge responsibility at the Home Office. You have to deal with, with really big, serious stuff, as well as police and terrorist attacks and things like that. I tried to allude to it earlier, but you must get, you know, your privacy information that no one else, or very few people will ever have. Could you just request stuff on a whim? You know, what, fi- like your file, you mean? Yeah. Yes, could you? Could you? No. Because that would a... be wholly wrong, wouldn't it, Matt? Ah, yeah, but that doesn't mean you wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but would you, would you ever, when you were Home Secretary, did you think, I'm going to see if they've got anything on those old trots that used to give me hell back in Malvern, you know? <laughs> Genuinely, no, I didn't. What was the coolest thing you got to do as Home Secretary? Gosh. Well, I did. Um, I did quite like it when we were in the car with the blues and twos on, yeah. um, with motorbike outriders. You try to be really calm about it, yeah. um, but it's sort of a little bit, little bit sort of. <laughs> um, but then you're sort of going off to some cobra meeting or something to that was the only time you know i have to say i didn't sort of go backwards and forwards the whole time with the lights flashing if there was something urgent you had to get to then then it would happen yeah right, so you know, it kicks off in 15 minutes yeah. <laughs> 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 traffic, traffic's a bit tough around villa park today <laughs> no um we most certainly did not do that because it's a, you know the security services are something that i think it's fair to say labor people are probably naturally skeptical of or even suspicious of and there's always that accusation that, you know, a lot of people say Blair got too close to the spooks, you know, and he was sort of mm. beguiled by them. First, do you think that's true? And should we be wary of the security services? Well, what's changed, of course, considerably over the last 20 or 30 years is the accountability of the security services. So they are not only accountable 
in the case of MI5 through the Home Secretary, in the case of MI6 and GCHQ through the, through the Foreign Secretary. Um, and uh, I genuinely felt that they, did, they didn't share on a day-to-day operational business, nor should they have done, but they did share the broad scale of what they were doing, and they did share every week the particular terrorist plots that they were tracking. Now, of course, there's two reasons for doing that. One, because the Home Secretary should know about them, but two, also, to show the scale of what they were facing. And I have to say, and I, I don't believe that I had sort of fallen for the security service talk, my view of them, I mean, in actual fact, you say, did I feel sort of nervous because I knew what was going on? Actually meeting the security service and the police officers who were responsible for counter-terror made me feel more secure about what they were able to do. Because I didn't only know about what plots were being uh, planned, but I knew about how many were being foiled as well. So all of that made me feel, I have to say, more secure about our security services. And more, I I do think there is a role for you, if you have done that job, to stand up for them. Because they are not people who can tell their story themselves. But they are enormously impressive. And on the whole, take their responsibility to protect our democracy and our values really seriously. That's not to say that I don't think 50 years, some 40, 30 years even ago, there weren't things going on that were, would be considered wrong. But I think it's much less likely to happen today. And now, of course, they're also accountable to the Intelligence and Security Committee in Parliament. They appear in public. Mm. I mean, I think that's right. It's slightly um, uh, false. You know, they don't appear in public and tell the security committee everything they tell them in private. But nevertheless, I think putting a face, hearing what they're saying about the threat, the fact that the director general of uh, MI5 does sort of public um, uh, interviews, all of that is good, I think, in building uh, some understanding and some faith in what's happening. Do they fit a profile? Because I always imagine them as sort of very posh, quite basically a kingsman. I, I sort of imagine them to all be like Colin Firth, sort of well-tailored gentlemen who can fight. Well, <laughs> no. You've got it wrong, Matt. I always used to, the, the thing I did always used to say about the spooks was, um, you know, I think role models are important because you need to see uh, what you want to be. Yeah. Um, and the trouble, of course, with the security services, it's a bit difficult for them to show everybody what they are. Except, of course, you've got spooks on the telly. Yeah. Although, as I always said about spooks, it's not very realistic because in real life, the spooks are a lot less good looking. And incidentally, the Home <laughs> Secretary is a lot less idiotic. Um, but where you're wrong, uh, actually, Matt, is that gross generalisation. MI5, of course, who are uh, operating uh, in the UK, uh, spend a lot of time on... Uh, interception on computer um, uh, stuff, they tend to be slightly more nerdy. (laughs) If you go to MI6, however, you see slightly more scars. (laughs) Oh, my God. If you go to GCHQ, they're very nerdy, or they're like, uh, you know, computer, like, hackers who they use in order to help them to deal with the cyber threat that we've Wow. Seen. So it's kind of Zuckerberg-y type. Yeah, type cool, you know, funny beards and... Hipsters. <laughs> hats on backwards and shorts and all of that. Sort of stuff. <laughs> Not everybody in GCHQ, no. but yeah, a little, little element of that. So with MI5, 
Um, I know, but it's just so fascinating. It's so secret. It's the secret service. I'm not going to tell you any secrets. Uh, yeah, but... Yeah. You, I'll, I'll try. But with... What I was going to ask was actually, a lot of the big debates about intelligence and security happened in the Blair era and the Brown era to some extent. We haven't really revisited them, even with a rise in terrorist attacks on British soil. So there hasn't been a national debate about ID cards again. We haven't really discussed things like intercept evidence fully. Uh, detention without trial hasn't flared up again. Do you think those things need revisiting? And are there any sort of other more modern policy solutions that you think aren't being given airtime? Well, quite interesting. There was, of course, in the coalition government, a move to try and separate themselves from what they saw as a sort of overly draconian um, authoritarian Home Secretaries of the Labour years and they tried to get rid of control orders and then over time they've realised actually there was a good reason for control orders and they've effectively brought them back again. There has been quite a big debate of course through the um, uh, investigatory powers bill the, the thing that, Snoopers charter. that some people call the Snoopers <laughs> Charter funnily enough I don't um, uh, about uh, the, the sort of legal uh, and um, sort of verification process around uh, that sort of um, the warranty that's necessary to um, intercept and how you collect the data that enables you to know what you need to intercept in the first place. So I think there's been a pretty big debate around uh, that, actually. I mean, I think that the we haven't returned to the sort of pre-charge detention um, uh, stuff because, on the whole, we probably were wrong to push it as much as we did when we were in government. And I think we probably got just about the right length of time. I believe that ID cards will come back again. And I, uh, I mean, bloody hell. Um, uh, David Davis, didn't he say in order to help us to have Brexit, we're going to need to have a card that proves people's identity <laughs> for when, so that we know if they are eligible to be in this country and we can check them when they cross borders? Mm. That sounds like an ID card to me, David. Yeah. Given that he was the one that was making the most fuss about it. Yeah. Well, the whole thing about the by-election. Know, David Davis was my opponent, and as you rightly say, you know, he spent the whole of his time saying, "You're overly draconian. You don't share enough with Parliament. Why aren't you telling Parliament more about this?" The guy cannot even provide some Brexit documents to a parliamentary committee, and he had the cheek to give me all of that pain and <laughs> trouble. Who was talking of adversaries? Who was the who was the most formidable adversary you faced over the dispatch box at any point in a in a shadow or in a or in a ministerial? Although you wouldn't have been shadow actually, because I was never shadow. You, no, I've you never been in straight, opposition. You, you, you elected in ninety seven. I've never been in opposition. Um, so who was who was the best you faced? Um, David Cameron was uh, shadow education at one point. He was quite good. Yeah. Um, funny enough, because he actually really cared about um, what he was what he was talking about. Um, although I never faced him directly, William Hague was yeah. very uh, good. Um... Who? Well, okay, who do you hate the most? <laughs> <laughs> but who was the one? Who was the one you thought? I can't believe I've got to see them every week. Could have been someone on your own side. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what they say: the opposition is opposite you. Your enemies are behind you. Um, the. Uh, uh, I had a period of time when Chris Grayling was my opposite number. <laughs> I was home secretary. I didn't mind seeing him every week because he wasn't actually very good at it. Um, I, I think I've expressed my frustration with uh, David Davis. Yeah. Um, 
I can't remember. I, I mean, considering that you're so close to them and you're sort of staring at them once a week, they've sort of I put them out of my mind quite a lot. But did you find it nerve-wracking at the dispatch box? I spent. One of the things that I think uh, sometimes MPs don't do enough of is, although I became an MP after, I, I became a minister after two years, and I'd had a baby in those two years as well. I tried very hard to spend a lot of time in the chamber of the House of Commons to get a feel for the way that it worked. So incidentally, I was by far the best <laughs> at the beginning. Um, but because um, I think it's, you know, you, you may feel a certain amount of contempt for all of that palaver that goes on in Parliament. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you also need to know how to work within Parliament. You need to know... What's going to really piss people off if you answer it in that way? You need to know how to handle yourself, so to speak, at the uh, dispatch box. And so I spent quite a lot of time watching what worked, what didn't work. So I felt, I never felt confident at the um, dispatch box, because if you do feel confident, you begin to, or if you feel overconfident, you begin to make mistakes. But I felt reasonably assured because I always worked hard, I always prepared hard. um, And on the whole, I think... I did all right in that. I think that was part of the reason why I was made Home Secretary, because they thought she can handle it in the, in the House of Commons. I mean, I can remember the very first time that I answered questions in Parliament, which was one of the most nerve-wracking yeah. I've ever faced, made more nerve-wracking by the fact that Estelle Morris was on my ministerial team. And in the Department for Education, they have lovely but slightly dodgy lifts. And she got stuck in the lift on the way down to come to questions. And I had prepared, I'd sort of worked so hard preparing my answers to the sort of two or three questions that I'd got responsibility for. And all of a sudden they said, you're going to have to do Estelle Morris's questions. I hadn't prepared for them or anything. That was, I mean, I, I was almost there with a crowbar prizing the lift open myself. But luckily she did get out just in time to get there and answer her own questions. I also, of course, had my family watching. Um, my son, who would have been about seven, my oldest son, all done up with a little tie, looking really lovely, sitting up in the gallery, um, head down, good as gold throughout the whole of the questions. Um, and afterwards, I said uh, to him, and I said to his dad, God, you were really well behaved, James. What, what, what were you concentrating on for all of that time? He said, it's OK, Mum, I've got my Pokemon cards. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best way to get through questions. And it was, Esther Morris was, was a very rare politician. She resigned for the reason that she said she would. She said if it was at GCSE results didn't yeah. improve, uh, during her time as minister she would go, and then did. Also because she said that she didn't enjoy being the Secretary of State. Estelle yeah. Morris is a fantastic person to work with. My very first ministerial job, I had Estelle Morris as my immediate boss, and David Blunkett as the... Amazing. Um, uh, it was such a fantastic department. And in there as well, there was Andrew Smith for a period of time, and there was Tess Jell. There was Margaret Hodge. There was Tessa Blackstone. It was... There was Malcolm Wicks, bless him. Uh, it was a fantastic team. You know, that's like when you go in. back through, like, an old sticker book and go, they had a phenomenal squad <laughs> There was then. a phenomenal <laughs> squad. No it wonder was. they were winning everything. It I mean, crikey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a very good first ministerial job actually to learn how to do it but no it still said that she you know she was brilliant as minister of state for uh, education and she was ideally suited to be secretary of state but she didn't enjoy it and I think she was wrong to stand down when she did because mm. I think she was doing a really good job but she wasn't willing 
to do the sort of winging it that is sometimes necessary as Secretary of State because she was just really genuinely committed to knowing what needed to be done and to, and to doing it. And because she didn't feel she was doing as, as well as she could do, she stood down. A massive loss, I think. In terms of being in Cabinet and being around the Cabinet table, what's the dynamic like when you... So as, as Home Secretary, whereabouts did you sit yeah. in, the, in the shape? Where well, was your... of course, you, the more powerful you are, the closer to the middle you yeah. sit. So the, if the Prime Minister's there, directly opposite is the um, Chancellor. Yeah. Uh, and then next to the Chancellor on either side is usually the Home Secretary. Sometimes the Foreign Secretary sits next to the Prime yeah. Minister. Uh, if you're less powerful, so when I was Chief Whip, I was in the Cabinet, but I used to sit right down here, practically in the garden. Yeah. Um, so, you know, moving to the centre of the table is a big... I used to have... Um, Douglas Alexander, when he was international development, on the other side of me, one of the funniest people you can sit next to. We used to, we used to make each other giggle. During uh, cabinet? Cabinet. I know. I'm, it's a shocking admission <laughs> when I should have been focusing on the good of the country. But um, there was the odd time, yes. So what, what, would, he, would he sort of, what, was it chuntering or was it for everyone's here or was it no, kind it was of just for me whispering in class? It was, like, it was like two naughty kids whispering in class. And what, yes. would, what would set him off usually? Um, he just is really. I can't, you know, I can't now remember the things that he said, but he was just really wry, and he would um, say things about some other people around the table. You know, the people who were clearly writing notes for their memoirs. Couldn't stand that. Um, but I mean, see, I have I have mixed feelings about that because I enjoy reading the memoirs. Would, are you not tempted to do one? Uh, I didn't write enough bloody notes, did I? I was too busy <laughs> messing about with Douglas Alexander to write, to write notes for That'd my That would be a memoir. great memoir. <laughs> all that's missing is your time in politics. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, between 1997 and 2015, I've uh, knocking around with a guy called Douglas, who's quite funny. I was messing about most of the time. <laughs> but they say that you shouldn't work with, with children or animals in, 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 in show business, but that's, that's true in politics as Indeed. well. Indeed, and I was very sympathetic a few weeks ago, when Emmanuel Macron's dog, do you remember this, uh, called Nemo, uh, very publicly did a wee on the fireplace behind him when he was filming a video. And I felt oh, a sense Thank God it wasn't of, the cenotaph. <laughs> I felt a sense of sympathy because I can remember sitting in a cabinet meeting, getting up to go actually, turning around, and underneath the sort of little occasional table, uh, just back here, there was a cat shit. In the cabinet office. In, cabin, in the cabinet room, a cat had crept in, crapped, and crept out again. And um, when I, it was quite. And at that point, there wasn't a number ten cat. There was only a number eleven cat. So Alistair Darling's cat had come into Gordon Brown's cabinet room and shat on the floor. Make of that <laughs> what you want to make of it. You sure, it wasn't one of Young Douglas's pranks. <laughs> like a little fake cat shit. That'll even things up. <laughs> That's incredible that even the animals were turning against Gordon Brown. <laughs> but when you went, so just just in terms of, because it was a phenomenal period that the, the tension between Blair and Brown and that and that crossover period. You were Blair's chief whip, and then Brown promoted you. Did he? In that discussion where you asked to be Education Secretary, did he sort of ask for your loyalty or anything like that? No, no, no. No, I think I was... Um, <laughs> um, I, I was always, you know, uh, I don't mind the label 
Blairite. I'm sort of proud of that label. But I don't think I was quite as partisan and tribal as some members of the tribe were. Mm. Um, so therefore, I think, and I had worked with a range, I'd been, you know, I had frankly been around government for a while and worked with a lot of different ministers from different sort of uh, allegiances within the Parliamentary Labour Party. And having been Chief Whip, I think most people thought I was reasonably fair and open-minded. And I think that, combined with, quite rightly, you wanted to have a woman in that role, uh, people told him that I was all right in, um, uh, in the chamber. I'd got a lot of experience in public sector. Um, I'd never been in the Home Office, but I'd done education, I'd done health, I'd been a qualities minister. So I had, had a lot of experience. I was one of the longest-serving ministers by that point. So I think it was all of those things, I hope, that made him choose me. But you become, you know, you've been Chief Whip, Home Secretary. Was there any part of you that thought, actually, if I'm, if I'm still an MP in the next ten years, I'd like a crack at the leadership? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes! Because everyone says no! Oh, everyone no, says no! I always say, if you ask a senior politician whether or not they'd like to lead their party and be, or be Prime Minister and they say no, they're a big fat liar. I think... I'm so- Everyone says no who comes there. They all say, oh, no, no, it wasn't about that for me. I'm so pleased. So I didn't spend my whole... Can I just say, I did not spend my whole time planning my leadership campaign and getting the T-shirts printed. <laughs> I was uh, doing my, you know, yeah. concentrating on doing my job and there wasn't a vacancy and all of those other things, Matt. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there was the odd moment when I thought, you know what, I think I could do that. And did you ever think of, you know, a slogan or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> or, or branding? Did that ever think... Well, no, I think it was... No, I didn't. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, Jackie Smith. Purposeful. <laughs> stay, strong you know, strong and stable. stable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anything like that, you know... I'd have been more strong and stable than... Your choice for Britain that works for hard-working everyone. For <laughs> the, <laughs> that, fuck, that, that, know, type thing, that type of thing. That type of thing. For the many, which I have now claimed to my new podcast, just let me get a plug in. Absolutely. That, um, for my new podcast that I do with um, Ian Dale, please subscribe and give us five stars. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great podcast. And it's, Thank you. It's, it's, it's open-minded and it's, you know, it's a good discussion about the, the state of things. So when you would sort of daydream about being yeah. Prime Minister... <laughs> I knew I wouldn't get away. With but would you often... Would you often how far did, did you ever talk to colleagues? Would you ever say, look, you know what, if Gordon does... You know, if, if any of those coups would have worked... Did you ever sound people out and say, no. look, I fancy this? I didn't get that far. And, but other people obviously thought that I might be thinking about it or I might be in a position to do it. Because I can remember a quote from somebody, and I'm still trying to work out who it was, who said, um, I wouldn't vote for her, but I think Jackie Smith would be, would be in with a shot. Which is the sort of nice thing that your colleagues say about you. <laughs> <laughs> So I was looking around the cabinet table thinking it was another cabinet minister. It's kind of it wasn't is... my mate Douglas. I'm, I don't think it was. <laughs> it sounds almost like cabinet meetings of that period were almost like sort of murder mystery weekends <laughs> where trying to sort of figure out who's done it and who's on your side and who's not. Yeah, who's what are they writing down? Who's planning? No, no, Matt, we are focused on running the country. Or in the first of Gordon's meetings, because Gordon was determined, of course, to be different from Tony, and the suggestion was that Tony sort of railroaded things through Cabinet, which wasn't actually my experience, I have to say. But in the first Cabinet meeting where Gordon was Prime Minister, 
he did this sort of super painful thing of going round the table and asking. It wasn't quite as bad as tell us something about you that nobody else knows or one of those sort of icebreakers, but it was sort of, I want to hear everybody's views on where we are. And it was sort of a bit painful because essentially you're... um, you're probably not that interested in what other people are around. I mean, you sort of are, but yeah. you're, you're more interested in what you're going to say. So he only did that once. <laughs> he only did that once. Not least because it took cabinet ministers, not short of an opinion. It took flipping ages to go all the way around the table. And then we still had to do all the rest of the business as well. That was a momentously long cabinet meeting. And that was the last time he did it. So tell us something about yourself that no one else knows. <laughs> <laughs> I've told you all, that my, all my secrets. Well, no state ones yet. <laughs> Indeed. One day. Right, let's open it up to uh, the floor. We've got time to take uh, three or four questions. So indicate clearly, we'll bring the house lights up. Uh, Jules will bring round uh, a mic. Let us know your name. And your question is a clear indication already uh, on this far side. It might be quite hard. It might be easier to just chuck it here, Jules, and I'll walk it across. Cheers, mate. There you go. Hello, over there. Can you just pass that back? That'd be okay, thank you. Oh, Cheers. Hi. Um, I'll start by saying I spent my childhood um, in a static caravan in Harlech. So <laughs> it's the place where all the cool kids hang out. Indeed, um, indeed. My question would be, um, if you asked your children now, um, would they recommend that you or anyone became a female MP? <laughs> question. Brilliant question. Um, my oldest son, I mean, uh, uh, probably not a secret that sort of towards the end of my time as Home Secretary, we went through as a family and I went through quite a difficult time as a um, politician. Yeah. And um, the, uh, my oldest son, whilst he's still politically interested, w- would definitely not recommend um, would definitely not recommend a political career, I think, to, to anybody and sort of gets quite angry about... Um, what happened to us as, yeah. a, as a family. Although he did write me the most lovely note um, when he turned 18, I think it was, in which he said how proud he was of my political um, career and what a good role model I was, etc. Um, my youngest son, funnily enough, who was slightly more sort of separated from all of the hoo-ha, is quite political and... Um, uh, quite interested you know he's sort of been the chair of the student council and he's quite interested in student he's just gone to university and he's quite interested in student politics so I think he might be more likely to although they are also both they're both boys and they are very aware of the challenges for women politicians because they saw the way that I was treated and um, you know, not just with all of the, the bad stuff, but actually more generally they saw how their mum was sort of referred to and yes. the comments on the clothes and the looks and all of those sorts of things. So they feel very strongly about the way in which everybody is, is treated. It, oh, you alluded to it there. It, it, I, I was wondering whether to ask you about it, but it, it was, a, you know, the... the MPs. <laughs> oh, ask me about it. it. Well... It was an MP's expenses thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, your husband had watched a, a, a film. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a mucky film. <laughs> um, I mean, 
uh, quite apart from anything else, that's awkward to go through as a family anyway, isn't it? Without that being public. How, yeah. in an odd way, was it worse for him or was it worse for you? Um, it was, I think it was worse for him because, funnily enough, I wasn't angry with him for watching the film. I was really angry with him because he put together... Remember, the only reason it came out was because, not that he watched the film, but because it was claimed for on expenses. <laughs> because what you do is you submit your um, uh, the cost of the TV for your second yeah. home. Is, it was a sort of legitimate expense. On the, Oh, no, the telephone bill. Sorry, the telephone bill. Yeah. And on the telephone bill, uh, it says if you've had additional films. And that month, they're in my household, they had watched... Not just that film, they had also watched Ocean's 13 and something like Finding Nemo. <laughs> Funnily enough, there was not quite so much uproar about claiming <laughs> for Finding Nemo and Ocean's 13, uh, uh, all, which were equally wrong to claim for, incidentally, on um, expenses. So, um, you know, God, it was my sister who's here supporting me this evening is a journalist, and I can remember her saying at the time, it's hard to imagine a worse combination than female home secretary, uh, MPs' expenses, pornography. I mean, this was a story made to have hordes of journalists outside your house day in, day out. Um, but in answer to your question, I think it was worse, worse for him. It was yeah. really horrible for him. I mean, it's it just... Obviously, a number of... You just think, does he have the internet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just start... That's what my son said. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, right... Can I just say, my son said to him, for Christ's sake, Dad, why didn't you look at it online? <laughs> and do you know what his answer was? Because my laptop is a parliamentary laptop and I didn't want to use it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's to Damien Gray. <laughs> oh, well, OK, so there was some political judgment there. <laughs> it's not very right. good accounting judgment. Yeah. No, oh, cry. I mean, is it a joke? Do, do you sort of joke about it now or is it just not talked about? <laughs> uh, we are only now, only now, at the point where we can joke about it. So if you go to bed first and he's just said, I'll just watch Match of the Day. Yeah, <laughs> fucking right. Yeah. Cost me ten quid again, will it? You're low. <laughs> no, I'm at home all the time now. He doesn't need to watch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Any more questions from, from downstairs? <laughs> oh, yes, just over there. So you've spoken a lot about living um, for three years with your protection officers on Brighton Beach and elsewhere, so I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the day that that all stopped. Did they kind of disappear in a puff of smoke like Bugs Bunny, or is there a kind of EU-style two-year transition arrangement <laughs> to get back to normality and enable you to find your car keys again? And things like that? Great question. Yeah, um, well, I wasn't like some people. I carried on driving and all sorts of things during that time period because I sort of knew it would come to an end at some point or another. Um, and uh, what happens is that there is, uh, for most... Uh, ministers who have protection, there is a short period of time uh, in which they carry on after you've um, finished, but which can be a sort of, they recommend minimum three months or up to two years. Some people who really loved that whole protection thing 
uh, naming no names, um, went on for two years. I said, I'll have the shortest possible time. Not because I didn't like them as people. I mean, they were, for my boys to have people to play um, cricket with on the beach, you know, additional fielders was absolutely (laughs) great. And they sort of, because they spend so much time with your family and they're quite a small group of people, you get to know them really well and you sort of feel quite, quite close to them. But it is also incredibly stifling you know I can remember on one occasion I just said right that's it I've had enough one Sunday afternoon I'm going out for a walk um, without having rung them up to tell them I was going out and I went out my back gate into some woods out the back I wasn't even on a main road and I'd gone about 200 meters and the phone rang and it was the protection team going are you okay (laughs) is everything okay and I thought they fucking know that I've left the house without telling them so um I only uh, had three months and then I actually went away on holiday and it was sort of quite moving because they accompanied me to the ferry and we sort of said goodbye and the kids said goodbye and then I got onto the ferry and sailed away. And when I came back, I was on my own. (laughs) Quite a nice way to do it. It was more difficult to get parking at Villa Park, but apart from that, (laughs) it was fine. But you can get involved in the fights now. Yes, indeed. (laughs) I can do the whole argy-bargy thing. Um, I thought the gentleman who asked the question when he said the day it ended was, was going to reference the sort of the unceremonious way in which political careers do end, which is you know in a sports hall or in a gym at a local authority building yeah. where you know your career is announced to be you know alive or dead to the nation, and then the awful scrimmage and things like that. Did you see the defeat coming? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah. of all of, the, of all of them, actually, I think yours is one of the. Hardest to watch because it is a real scrum, and you just want to you just want to get out of the room, and they're they're not sort of letting you. Yeah. At, at that point, how hard is it to keep yourself control and not just go? I've just lost my seat, mate. Fuck oh, off. <laughs> yeah. To go full Beckett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew. Uh, to be honest with you, I had sort of had enough of explaining myself. By the time we got to the election, I was sort of. 100%. Well, every every candidate always has a faint glimmer of hope that they're going to win, but I was 99% certain I was going to lose. Um, so I, as you say, I went to the um, count. I had written a losing speech. I hadn't written a winning speech. Um, I was determined to be dignified. If you remember in that election, I think it was Joanne Cash who sort of, and, and other people who have let themselves down by being undignified at the yes. point of loss. I said, which I still believe, that uh, fighting elections, even when you fear you're going to lose, as well as when you hope you're going to win, is a noble thing to do, and it's important that people do it, otherwise we wouldn't have a democracy. Um, and then I did try to leave without doing any interviews, and actually people were quite cross with me because I didn't do any, but I sort of slightly thought, I've explained this over and over again, I've lost, I'm off. And I did have people <laughs> trying to climb up my front gate, I had quite a big gate because it had been put in as part of the security provisions. I had people sort of climbing up the gate and sort of peering over the top, and I got quite close to saying it. But I suppose I learnt my lesson because a little bit later, when I was on my summer holidays, actually, um, I was contacted by a uh, male uh, journalist, M-I-A-L journalist, uh, and I, needless to say, partly because of the way I've been treated, I didn't have a lot of time for the mail, who was talking to me about some job I'd applied for, blah, blah, blah. And um, I wasn't answering them. And then as, they, as the conversation finished, I foolishly said, so why don't you fuck off? Uh, funnily enough, that was on the front page of the paper. <laughs> so, uh, so, kept it. <laughs> 
So there is a reason for not yeah. doing it because it will simply come back on you. Well, that's a, a, a tremendous amount of self discipline. Apart think, from few. when I told them to fuck off. Apart from when you actually did it. Um, is there anyone on the balcony that likes to ask a question? If so, Yelp, because I can't see very well. No, no one on the balcony. Any more on the ground floor? One more. And this, this is the final question of the night. This will be the best question ever asked. <laughs> no pressure then. No pressure. I was going to ask, uh, first of all, do you ever go back to party conference now? And secondly, how welcome are you made to feel? Uh, the answer is yes, I do. Uh, for Labour Women's Network events, I don't go for the, um, uh, for the whole time. Um, I don't spend an awful lot of time on conference floor. Uh, I'm afraid I do that thing of going to see my mates and have a few drinks. And I am made to feel um, pretty, pretty welcome. And uh, the Labour Party, uh, you know, uh, it's, I don't think any particular surprise to anybody that I'm not wholly in um, sympathy with the current leadership. But uh, the Labour Party is the longest relationship I've had in my life. And... Uh, some of my best friends are Labour Party members. And I, although, and I know you've taken a different decision than that, but um, I cannot imagine a situation where I won't get a buzz from a Labour Party meeting or a Labour Party conference, even when times for me politically are difficult. I love, still love politics and I still love the Labour Party and I can't imagine a time when I won't. Oh, crikey. <laughs> Both feel uh, emotional and guilty. Um, <laughs> Christ. <laughs> well, that brings us then. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a, a, another very special night here. Um, this is the last show here until next year, but there are two Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre, one on the 6th of December, and there's only about five tickets left for that, so we've added the second day on the 7th. The lineups have slightly changed. On the 6th of December, it's Nick Clegg and Saeed Avasi. And on the 7th of December, it is Anna Subri and Ken Livingston. Uh, those tickets are available <laughs> online, um, should you wish to buy them. So that is the 6th with uh, Soda Varsi and Nick Clegg, and the 7th with Ken Livingston and Anna Subri. Uh, this has been a phenomenal night. Um, Jackie, genuinely one of the best nights we've had here, and one of the, one of the best guests we've ever had. Please, uh, I, I'm sh- I know you want to show your appreciation, please give a huge thank you to a phenomenal guest, Jackie Smith. <laughs> Well, there you go, Jackie Smith. What a phenomenal person. What a great politician she was. And I mean, I, I, she's not a parliamentarian anymore, but still a political actor of, of, of some distinction. Absolutely brilliant. And I was delighted, delighted when she admitted that she wanted to be Prime Minister. Because, of course, so many of them do. But they never, ever say it. I'm still buzzing from that. I love the fact that she said she did. And you can only reflect on, on what a great leader of the Labour Party she would have been. It was, it was superb. And I did, towards the end, you may have picked this up, um, and it came from an audience question. I was umming and ahhing about whether to ask her about what had happened with her expenses and her husband watching the, uh, the film. Um, y- y- I never want to shy away from the thing that everyone that is on everyone's mind. But obviously it's such a personally sensitive thing. It wasn't like it was necessarily a fully political affair because it did have implications for a relationship with the husband. So I wasn't, you know, the the time was ticking on and I realised I'd probably have to address it in some way. But 
I was um, saved, perhaps, by the fact that it came uh, off the back of an audience question. But what a brilliant answer and what a great attitude towards it. And one of those politicians, like Alan Johnson, really, super smart, deeply intellectual, but wears it very lightly. And I'm always impressed by, by those people. And you always just think, well, that's the, that is, to some extent, the perfect mix. Someone who is very sharp, super bright, but actually doesn't feel the need to show it off all the time and is comfortable with themselves and can stay. I mean, as far as politicians go, holding one of the four great officers of state and keeping your feet on the ground in the way that Jackie Smith has really is, a, I think, quite a rare achievement and a, and a real lesson just to not just politicians, but all of us in life, I suppose. But she was brilliant. And I'm still, um, you know, days later, just still absolutely thrilled by it. It was one of my favourite interviews. And again, I know I say that all the time, but I really did mean it. Um, There are two Christmas specials, as I mentioned, at the Leicester Square Theatre, the 6th of December with Baroness Farsi and Nick Clegg, and the 7th of December with Anna Subri and Ken Livingston. You can get the remaining tickets available on the Leicester Square Theatre website. I hope to see you soon. Thank you for downloading this. Please do leave it a review on iTunes and share the links with your friends. We're always looking for new uh, listeners and we want to, you know, I want as many people as possible to, to, to be able to listen to these interviews. So thank you for, you know, downloading it and for coming to the shows and everything else. And if this is the last time... Oh, no, I'll put the other ones out. But an early Merry Christmas, because we're in December now, aren't we? we? I've got the Christmas tree up, so, um, yes, it's Christmas. So uh, I could sound happier about it. It's Christmas! So Merry Christmas. See you soon. Ta-ra. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.